Okay, so no escapes insane. Yeah. You guys <laughs> oh. ready to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's jump in. All right, let's get into it. Let's officially start the show. What's up, everybody? We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And uh, welcome, one and all, to the year 2022. Uh, joining us for our very first episode of the new year, returning champion, friend of the show from down under, it is Owen Morowitz. Owen, welcome back. Glad you're here. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's good to be in the new year. Good to say, uh, fuck off 2021, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't decided if it's good yet. I just know that I'm here. It's very early days, Kali. It's, it's <laughs> still days. very early. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're very early in the game. We don't know if it's going to be good yet, but we have no choice but to be here because that's how time works. One thing that's certainly promising about uh, the year 2022 is all of the uh, dystopian science fiction movies that are set uh, in this year. What's up? What's up? What's up? Yeah, we've got uh, Soylent Green set in the year 2022. Uh, the Purge, the very first one uh, with Ethan Hawke, is set in the year 2022. I think about this all the time. Like, it's a weird thing that, like, this moment that we're living through is like the point in time that everyone like speculated would have all of the crazy shit. Like it would either be like dystopian or post-apocalyptic or maybe some kind of like weird utopian, you know, future that isn't, but like the whole idea of futurism as a thing. And then, you know, 60 years ago, 20 years ago, even with the purge, like not even a decade ago, like Mm -hmm. this was the point where they were like, Oh, this is when shit will be crazy. And let me tell you about how crazy it is. And <laughs> yeah, uh, it is crazy. We're, we're living in it. It's fucking crazy. And yet another film of a dystopian sci-fi future uh, set in 2022 is the film of today's discussion. The topic of today's discussion, No Escape from 1994, directed by Martin Campbell, starring Ray Liotta, Lance Henriksen, Stuart Wilson, Ernie Hudson. And a very silly Michael Lerner in here as well. Um, the opening scroll of this film, the inner title that begins it all, sets this in the year 2022 without uh, a shred of, of anything wrong. It, it, it is the most prescient, I think, inner title I've seen in a movie that sets itself in a, in a near future because not a word of it rings false nope. to the current situation within our carceral system. Uh, the movie opens with this. In the year 2022, the international prison system is operated by private corporations. Criminals from all over the world are exploited at a profit. Prisons have become big business. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, But I was fascinated from the get-go. I saw this title come up uh, in German in our copy, uh, which we'll also talk about why in a little bit. No way. (laughs) I had the same copy. The German copy? Oh, shit. Nice. Yeah. Guess it Um, fell off the back of the same truck. Yeah, it it must have, right? And found its way here to our shores and to your zone. (laughs) Remarkable. But uh, yeah, you know, when when it opens up, we were like, holy shit. Okay. Here we go. You know, let let's see how this uh, how this plays out. Uh, lo and behold, that factors into the film almost not at all. Like no, not at <laughs> very all. Maybe little for of like, it happening here for like the first ten minutes, and then it's just like yeah, forget all of that. Let's let's do something else. It's yeah. very, totally, very, very very bizarre. 
So this one is also a film that's kind of been lost to time. Um, it is, as we mentioned already, directed by Martin Campbell, uh, famous for The Mask of Zorro, uh, Vertical Limit, as well as two Bond features, both GoldenEye and Casino Royale. I would um, say two of the best, too. Two, agreed. Yeah. Two of my favorites, for sure. I think he really found his calling and managed to, I think, do two exquisite Bonds and two very distinct Bond styles. Yes. Correct. Two like, different registers. There's a, a big difference between Brosnan Bond and Craig Bond, and I think he nails both of them. Absolutely. Um, he's a, Yeah, he's a, he's a pretty formidable director and reunited with Pierce Brosnan not long ago in 2017 for uh, The Foreigner, which mm-hmm. also stars Jackie Chan. It's a pretty, pretty oh, I saw that. That, that, that. that was not a bad film. It was, it was I okay. liked it. He's still kicking. He's still making some pretty good action movies. He's always making pretty pretty decent to like great action fare. Mm-hmm. Um, I would put this one probably on the on the the left hand side of that spectrum, closer to like decent. Um, but not because it doesn't have any ideas, right? Like nah. this this film is not lacking in its world building or or in its sort of concepts that it's playing around with, but he doesn't bring a whole lot of it to fruition or sort of like do anything with those ideas they're just sort of stuffed into the frame and you're like oh there's a lot of shit happening here and then like you feel that way the entire movie (laughs) yeah i don't think he was terribly invested in the material in terms of trying to make some kind of statement and you watch the film and that's very much the case like you don't come away with it really having any kind of message i mean we overthink these things literally for the podcast so we can do that (laughs) but i don't think the average viewer is supposed to do that um and yeah i don't think he imbues it with any kind of directorial flair or anything like it's a very competently made film it succeeds at exactly what it's trying to do but he doesn't really give it any extra um, and, and that's fine. Like I can commend him for that. Like sometimes you just gotta, you know, get the paycheck. So, and I mean, I, I enjoyed the movie enough, you know, like when we put it on, I wasn't bored during it. I thought that there was no. some moments that were a lot of fun. Um, Stuart Wilson in particular as the, as the villain Merrick is like having the time of his life and is like magnetic in every so season. So obsessed with him in this movie. At times I thought he was in a different film or like, <laughs> yeah, or like whatever directorial, kind of notes he'd been given like it kind of felt like watching like a stage actor like he had this big kind of bombastic thespian kind of register to everything that he was doing and then you know with the extras and the sets and then like Ray Liotta's kind of like coolness kind of like cutting through it it was very strange very magnetic like like you say I was just kind of like watching him and riveted the entire time but overall like a little bit tonally off but i think i think that makes for a more interesting film so definitely not a not a negative in any way yeah Yeah. definitely like uh out of place in a lot of the other uh against a lot of the other performances and i agree with you like a lot of bombast a lot of uh kind of like wackiness and and uh you know some hints of mania uh in his performance and in his character and yet at the same time like i felt like his performance was very like handedly done like it felt very easy he he didn't feel like it was like labored in any way and i think he felt the most sort of like at home sort of 
physically in in his costuming like Absolutely. everyone else felt a little bit like they were in a costume and For were sure. kind of like moving like they were in a costume and he just uh he spoke and moved with alacrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I was looking at his kind of previous work. So he had done, I think, Lethal Weapon 3 uh-huh. prior to this. Mm-hmm. And he was the villain in that. Okay. So then that probably led to his casting for this, I would say. And yeah. then I think it's the working relationship that he had with Campbell on this that led to The Mask of Zorro. Yes. So he plays Don Raphael, and he's really good in that yeah, movie too. Magnificent, he's like a very charismatic. Yeah, villain. absolutely. Him and Antonio Banderas, like electric in that film. Yes, yeah. um, completely. Yeah, so I think that's the through line there. Is that like he'd obviously played, you know, like an action villain, and they're like, okay, we need an action villain, slightly more kind of silly plot in this one. So he kind of brings a little bit more of a manic energy to it, um, and obviously, you know, he and Campbell got along pretty well because he he jumped board to that film so yeah very interesting kind of through line going on there he also continues his relationship into a third collaboration with uh vertical limit in 2000 2001 i don't remember yeah, quite what year that is, but right? yeah i think he's he's one of the like veteran climbers who's at like the base camp he's not in the movie for very long um but he is he is good in it i that's a movie that i i have a very soft spot for I, I think it's actually a lot of fun and, and really quite good, even though I, I can see all of its faults very clearly. I remember seeing that in a theater and I would be probably at the very end of primary school, maybe the start of high school, kind of like early adolescence type type deal. But yeah, I can remember enjoying that film, but have not seen it since. So perhaps I need to revisit yeah, mm-hmm. there is one scene that is both in the trailer and, of course, then in the film where Chris O'Donnell sprints off the edge of a cliff with a pickaxe in either hand, leaps across a ravine with both pickaxes sort of windmilling about oh my God. as he like Incredible. goes for the opposite wall. And it is the most riveting part of both <laughs> the movie and the trailer. Uh, like, like you watch it just for that moment and it's it's a good stunt. No, I kind of want to watch Vertical Limit tonight. Yeah. A double feature of like cliffhanger and vertical limit. I think that's a good time. You know, like, yeah, absolutely. You're gonna have a great time with that. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't place it while I was watching the movie, and it actually just occurred to me like earlier while we were getting ready for the show. But Stuart Wilson in this movie has a a sort of intonation and delivery that I found very familiar immediately, and I realized who it was. It's George Carlin, especially like an older George oh, Carlin. He's got yeah, kind yeah, of like yeah. a reedy very matter of fact sort of delivery um, that's almost like kind of leaning into uh, charisma based in, I don't know, just like sarcasm and, and wit. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I could totally I, see that. I, I can feel that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then of course, Lance Henriksen who elevates everything he's in just by virtue of being there and, <laughs> yes. and showing himself off. He's incredibly stoic in this film. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's obviously the role he's playing is literally just called father. So yeah. you know, it's just <laughs> kind of wearing the material on the outside. Um, but yeah, he's really good in this. And he kind of, like you say, Aaron kind of anchors everything else that's going on around him. So um, I quite enjoyed what he was doing. And I thought the contrast between Ray Liotta, Stuart Wilson and Henriksen, like that was a pretty, pretty good casting. Actually, most of the film has really great casting. Yeah, I was going to say, like, 
along with Stuart Wilson, I think um, Kevin J. O'Connor, who plays sort of like the the guy who catches all the knickknacks from the ocean mm. and oh, really yeah. wants Leota's boots, um, who's sort of like a perennial presence in like 90s action movies. He's also uh, has a substantial role in The Mummy. I was trying to place him and I was like, I know I've seen that dude in so much stuff. Yeah. Yes. And <laughs> in my in my little research, like I didn't pull up his filmography, but I knew as soon as he came on screen, I was like, oh, I've seen that dude in everything. Like he's yeah. around yeah. all the time. And he certainly feels like he's in the same movie as Stuart Wilson, kind of being yes. a little campy, a little goofy. Um, uh, we initially came to this movie, I think, because of a tweet by film critic Matt zoller Seitz, who had been interviewing Leota for his role in The Many Saints of Newark back okay. in September and mentioned that in his conversation with Leota, Leota said that this film, No Escape, is one of the ones that he had the most fun ever doing and that he wished more people would see. Um, of course, there are many reasons why it's hard for people to see, namely that it's not really available um, in, in many formats and on streaming services. But I did notice that, you know, as we were watching, it's like, this is very against type for Leota. Like this is not Goodfellas Leota at all. Like this is like action hero Leota. So I was reading in on this and yeah, so it's post Goodfellas uh, and like Field of Dreams and all the stuff that like brought him to kind of notoriety. And I think for him, it was maybe like trying to change his like typecast persona, I guess, trying to go against type. So trying to be the good guy as opposed to like the bad guy or the anti hero, um, which is strange because he kind of is that in a way. And there's these mm-hmm. weird, there's these weird kind of moments in the film that we can get into that kind of like, yeah, I don't know, create some tension in his, in his character and particularly in his performance as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is kind of against type for Leota. Uh, I thought he was very good in it um, and quite handsome looking like early nineties. Yeah. Like Paige and I, uh, my wife for the listeners, uh, we were watching this in a hotel room over Christmas and she was like, oh, he's handsome. And I was like, I know, right? I was like, maybe not so much anymore. Sorry, Ray Leota, if you're listening. Sorry, Ray. But I was just like, damn, like he's got some some 90s kind of handsome going on there. There's something about him in this movie and I don't know if it's like, you know, uh, like an Italian Burt Lancaster thing, (laughs) but like... He felt sort of like classic Hollywood leading man handsome in this movie, which like in every other film I've seen Ray Liotta in, even in the stuff that he made before this, I've never looked at him and been like, oh, my God, you are very handsome. And yet in this movie, for whatever reason, um, maybe because he like buffed out for it or it was just like him in the jungle like did something for me but it's the sweat is, Kali. it's the sweat it's yeah. the sweat it's the sweat and it's you know yeah. like him like stabbing people through chests right. or whatever yeah. i guess um <laughs> no but i totally agree he there there is and maybe it's because he was having so much fun like in this film there's like an extra energy that we're getting that you know you can't quite place but he does he does sort of land differently um, in terms of his his physical appearance in this film. I, I want to briefly ask both of you, have have either of you seen the film Karina Karina? I have not. So Ray Liotta is the lead in that. He plays opposite um, Whoopi Goldberg. It's oh, wow. like 
one of the movies that like we made in the 90s because we felt bad about segregation, but we didn't really want to do anything about it. Um, So he plays, um, he also plays a character that I think is pretty against type for him. And, and he's sort of like the romantic interest of, of Whoopi Goldberg's character. And you know, the, the big thing in the movie is that it's an interracial couple and it's taking place in the fifties and sixties. And so it's a big deal, whatever. We don't have to get into that. But when, when we were talking about, you know, his sort of run of these, you know, this sort of typecast for him that I was reminded of that film because he is a romantic lead in that movie and he is like a jello advertising like copywriter. <laughs> like yeah. that's his job in the movie. Incredible. And and I think he like maybe also took that role because it's like very different from some of the other stuff that he's doing even later in in movies like Copland and whatever else. But anyways, just a little shout out for Karina Karina. I think I've only ever really seen him in those gangster criminal underworld type roles that he's so good at. Like he is, he's put in those films for a particular reason because he has such a magnetic presence for those type of slimy kind of characters. Um, one that I'm, I was kind of thinking about while I was watching this as like maybe the last time I saw him in something relatively new that I enjoyed was uh, Killing Them Softly. With yes, Brad Pitt. I knew you were going to say yes. that. Yep. Yeah, because his <laughs> performance in that is like, I don't know, it's just, it's very intense. He plays this loathsome, completely pathetic kind of guy um, and just, yeah, kind of steals the movie, I think, with yeah. like Gan- with Gandolfini and Brad Pitt. It's like he, he kind of runs away with it, which is kind of yeah. fascinating. Yes. Yeah, I want to see Ray Liotta in more stuff. Like, he's fantastic. He needs to have like a, I don't know, uh, like a Marlon Brando, like late career kind of like, I don't know, run of films or something, but he should yes. be in more, he, sh- he should be in more stuff for sure. Hopefully not any Brando style things where he's in just like a bunch of white makeup and has like a, a double playing him like in Dr. Moreau, uh, you know, something, something different than that, where he's like, okay. just not in a hammock on set every day, but I will take old, older Ray Liotta in a bunch of stuff. Cause yeah, he's Absolutely. still doing good work and, and yeah, he's, he's great in here. Um, Owen, do you, do you think you could take, take a stab at summarizing <laughs> no escape for us? Absolutely. So I anticipated this as I always did. So <laughs> I, uh, I've scribbled down some things so we can jump right into that. So uh, we've already covered the opening scroll, which pretty succinctly kind of states what's going on in the film. You've got criminals from all over the world, exploited out of profit. Prisons are being run by corporations. The film opens with uh, Marine Captain J.T. Robbins, which is Ray Liotta's character. And he's been sentenced uh, for assassinating his commanding officer for reasons that we will get into later. And he arrives at the Leviticus uh, prison facility, which is run by Michael Warner, uh, sorry, Michael Lerner's character, The Warden. Um, So then there's like some dystopian future shenanigans. He challenges the warden's authority and then very quickly is banished to a secret and remote prison island called Absalom. And there, uh, Robbins finds that the island is divided into two camps. There's the outsiders, 
which are led by a potentially cannibal warlord called Marek, which is played, as we mentioned earlier, by Stuart Wilson, and the Insiders, which are led by uh, the father character, which is played by Lance Henriksen, um, alongside some other kind of uh, supporting actors, uh, Hawkins, which is played by Ernie Hudson, and uh, Casey, which is Kevin Dillon's character. Um, uh-huh. pr- probably the only thing I've seen him in other than Entourage, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So <laughs> he popped up and I was like, oh shit, it's the guy from Entourage. I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> um, so then uh, Robbins basically doesn't want to take sides in their fight. He really just wants to escape, hence the title of the film. Uh, so then we get into a whole whole bunch of B-plot stuff that kind of dragged the film for me, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but the inciting incident is that Robbins steals a weapon from the Outsiders, which sparks off some conflict. And then he also steals a part for a boat that the Insiders are building to try and escape the island. Uh, then the two groups fight. They celebrate Christmas. They do some Gilligan's Island shit. They overcome betrayals, they fight some more, and then by the end of the film, both Marek and the father character are both dead. And then rather than take over as leader of the Insiders, uh, Robbins decides to expose the horror of Absalom to the world. He steals a helicopter, strands the warden on the island at the mercy of the Outsiders, uh, and then escapes the island. And that's it. That's pretty good, man, considering how much weird crap there is in this film yeah, lots of twists and turns I, I, I cut out all of that stuff and i figure we can get into that later but that's the that's the through line of the film as i got it so well done i said elsewhere and i i stand by this that this film i think wants to be escape from new york by way of the road warrior but really ends up looking something more like alien three meets Waterworld. Oh yeah, I like those comparisons. <laughs> yeah, I was tr- I was tr- I was trying to think of that in my head. I was like, the beginning bit at Leviticus, like the ten minute almost kind of prologue that you could kind of excise from the film completely, and it would still work. Yes. Like there's there's that bit where it smash cuts to the helicopter flying into Absalom, and I was doing my rewatch this morning, and I was like, oh, you could just start here. Like you don't, yeah. you don't, you don't yeah. really need the rest of it. Like they explain why he's on the island, and like they explain who the warden is. I'm like, you'd figure all that out. You don't need all the other stuff. Um, but that early bit reminded me of uh, Judge Dread. Yes, um, completely. Totally. Which, <laughs> which hadn't come out yet. It comes out in '95, but a lot of weird kind of similarities there with like this dystopian kind of prison setting, um, and then. Yeah, I was trying to think of like an allegory or like a comparison film with the island stuff. And I was running up against like Lord of the Flies, Mm. Island of Dr. Moreau, Gilligan's Island, just like there's a bunch (laughs) of weird stuff going on there, but none of it ever really like feels cohesive. It it does feel like it's just kind of borrowing different things. Um, But yeah, I like your comparisons, Aaron. They're a lot more kind of on the money. Yeah, I mean, obviously... uh... Waterworld also comes out the following year in 1995, but there is something about the production design of the film, Mm -hmm. the costuming, the way that they sort of repurpose like normal everyday objects and, and gear and, and sort of mechanical elements and build them into 
costuming and and the building designs um it's it's not an uncreative movie like there is a lot going on in terms of the way that it is uh oriented towards uh it's set pieces towards the costuming of of both the outsiders americs men and and the insiders and they have very distinct kind of ensembles and and looks to them um yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, my, it's one of the high points of the movie for me is is seeing just sort of like the creativity and all of those, all of that design work. I yeah. actually think that the practical world building done in this film is one of my favorite parts of the movie. Absolutely. Both in the beginning sequence that you mentioned at uh, Leviticus, which I was like, I, I'm very interested to see like at least half the movie here if not more we didn't get that um and and the practical world building uh done on the island like so many details um so much uh like craftsmanship and like thought put into the not just the set design and the costuming but also just sort of like the props and the 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 stunts that are done like i there was always something for my eye to take in um, yeah. which at times was challenging when they're also throwing a lot, you know, when it's kind of messy ideologically, like the ideological world building, not nearly as much of a fan of, but the practical world building I, I quite enjoyed. Yeah. The, the setting of everything, you know, and how they, how they visually kind of represent that world, the aesthetic of the film works completely you buy mm-hmm. it it looks real it looks lived in yeah you, know, you don't there aren't many times when you're like oh this is a costume except right. there's one point in my rewatch i watched like the very end where they have like the final battle between like the outsiders and the insiders and there's a dude running across the the like like the grassy area and he's just got a spatula like stuck to like his helmet and i was like i was like okay like i get it they're repurposing stuff but that's like a bit silly um there's a little bit of cgi stuff in there that's like early 90s cg that some of it looks pretty good some of it doesn't hold up there's some Mm -hmm. stuff like the leviticus stuff at the beginning i was like oh that's that's early 90s but it's pretty cool like it looks okay Mm -hmm. and then there's like some stuff on the island with the boat and like the helicopters yeah. destroying it. And I was yeah. like, uh, that looks like, I don't know, like some Sega Saturn, like cutscene shit. So, I don't know. It looks pretty bad. Um, but yeah, all the practical stuff is great. And I think the sets, you know, they really went all out to kind of do all of that. Um, and it would have been a big job. Um, yeah. Did you guys know that it was mostly filmed in Australia? I did know that I was going to bring that up I with you. I didn't know that. Um, it's almost like we planned it this way. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, won- I, won- I wondered if that was the case. but um, It was funny because we were watching it, and, and I think Carly even remarked, she's like, where are they shooting this? Because this is, this is a lot of different kinds of locales and sort of uh, topographical conditions all right next to one another. There's the jungle, there's the ocean, there's the rock walls. Um, they, they find some really beautiful locations to set everything up. Like it, it feels it feels like a movie and it definitely feels like it's like punching above its weight. And I think that's one of the things that I admire about it is that uh, it feels a lot bigger than than the numbers would suggest. But yeah. I get why Ray Liotta said this as the answer to that question because I kept thinking like as an actor this movie would be so fucking fun. Like, even if you're not playing the leading role, just like the sets, the, the you know, 
just the amount of of work and effort and thought going into the production and just like how um how big the scope of the movie is like i totally get why he said that this was one that he had a really good time with how are you feeling okay you want to sit down no what's your name robbins this is mr hawkins our chief of security i'm known as the father here the what the father how'd you just get the outsiders what difference does it make how'd you get past the traps what is this place sanctuary mr robbins look i've been shot beaten half drowned i'm not in the mood for an interrogation this is not an interrogation. Good, then you do the talking. I went down in the weeds on this stuff because, like, once I started looking, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. So <laughs> I love you for it. Oh, uh, so I couldn't really find many reviews of the film, mm-hmm. and anything that I found was fairly overwhelmingly positive. So, like, again, I don't really know why this film's been forgotten because it seemed to be mostly well received. Didn't really do well in the box office, but there are plenty of 90s films that kind of do that they just kind of get released and then kind of fade away um but a lot of comparisons were made to uh fortress from 1992 which is the christopher lambert film oh right Mm -hmm. it's kind of similar to this uh but that was filmed in queensland and then right around the same time that this was being filmed or no escape i should say uh another film was being filmed here in the same studio at the same time, which was uh, Street Fighter, the 1994 uh-huh. video game adaptation. So, yep. yeah, weird that there was a lot of, I guess, you know, relatively big budget Hollywood stuff being being produced over here at the time. Um, the reasoning for it was that Queensland or our state government were giving a lot of uh, tax cuts uh Mm. and rebates and things to do that so they were trying to drive that industry so that's why that's why a lot of that stuff just looks like australia so that's cool (laughs) it works it works in the film yeah and it seemed to work for uh for the studios and for queensland since we've got so many of these uh these films as output that were all shot there absolutely um i I do want to talk about this this opening scene uh that you mentioned owen uh one because it's it's a great start to the film and immediately following the inner title, there's sort of this, uh, askew platform that some military officers are standing on. You hear kind of like the bugles come in, like the, the music, the, the score sort of transitions to something that sounds much more like a military march. And then you start seeing the soldiers kind of passing diagonally through the shot. And as they do, all of a sudden, as, as you uh, already alluded to, one of these men steps out of line, draws a gun, and just pops one of the officers in the head, like seemingly out of nowhere. Um, it's it's a it's a real bang of an opening. Yeah, I on my rewatch because obviously I like watched it the first time and wasn't really wasn't really gelling with it narratively on like what it was or what it was showing. But the second time through, I was like, okay, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to watch this, and there's. I think what makes it so arresting is like there's not really any element of chaos to it. Like you would think that someone breaking formation, running up to a superior, 
shooting them in the head would be like a chaotic thing. But he kind of like pulls out his weapon and even right up until the shot, like the superior officer, like doesn't move, doesn't flinch. So it's just got this really, I guess, arresting kind of sense of control to all of it. Mm. Whereas it could be in someone else's hands, like this chaotic, messy thing that, you know, intuitively we would say that's what would happen is like, everyone would be like, holy shit, what's going on. But you don't get that. You just get this measured sense of calm, the violence, and then Mm. it just ends. Yeah. It's a really inspired opening. It is. And tonally kind of really kind of puts you on edge to kind of pay attention and see what's going on. Like within the first couple of minutes, you're like, okay, what's what's going on in this film? I don't know if you caught this, Owen. I, I certainly hope you did because it, it stood out to me as we, we were watching. Um, but we find out a little bit later on through some dialogue and exposition that that scene is indeed a, a flashback to nearly or about a decade earlier that uh, Robbins has been in prison for... Uh, something like 10 or 11 years has tried to escape multiple times from he has successfully successfully escaped escaped from some maximum security prisons in the past and which is why he's in leviticus uh, and then eventually absalom uh did you happen to notice that the warden mentions that he is like a a sort of delta force green beret kind of guy who was in benghazi in 2011 i absolutely did and (laughs) as soon as as soon as that came through i was like uh that's a very very particular thing to point out of just like a postulated future conflict. And obviously like I remembered all of the Benghazi stuff happening and I was like, holy shit, that must've been roughly about a decade ago. And then, yeah, I did some quick kind of Wikipedia searching and I was like, oh shit, that was a decade ago. And I was like, this film is like eerily prescient to just kind of like pick these things out of the ether. And I guess like I'll go into this now, but like, did you look at kind of the source material for this or like how it kind of came about? I, I did. And yeah, this is a good place to talk about it. So the the film No Escape is an adaptation of a novel called The Penal Colony, written by Richard Hurley, uh, believe published in 1987, if I'm That's not correct. mistaken. Yeah. Uh, so- very, very different story. Yeah, I only really just looked at like the synopsis on Goodreads, but the the basic thread of the novel seems to be roughly the same, but it's not a military man who gets exiled. It's just a guy who commits uh, or is said to have committed a sex-related crime. And then he goes to, uh, I believe they call the island uh, Cert is what it's mm-hmm. called, but yep. they change it to Absalom in this film. So yeah, the adaptation is, I guess, largely faithful to like kind of the spirit of the book, but then they've obviously changed a lot of details and characters and things like that. So very, very strange that for whatever reason, this was kind of picked up as an adaptation choice. Uh, The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that the two guys who have the screen screenwriter credits um, have largely not done anything else or not really anything of note that I could find, like just relatively unknown uh, guys. So just, yeah, I'm kind of fascinated as to how they got involved, found this particular novel, because it doesn't seem to be a very popular novel, like it's not well-known or anything like that. So yeah, a very kind of strange 
string of circumstances to get to to no escape yeah and i was looking a little bit in more into the novel and found uh richard hurley's blog where he oh. writes a little bit about the inspiration for the for the book oh fascinating uh, apparently he, he had the inspiration shortly after the minor strikes were put down in the UK by Thatcher. And so it, he gives what I think is maybe perhaps one of the most neoliberal kind of perspectives and responses I've ever read, like just sort of in, Perfect. in one nice little concrete, uh, paragraph or two where he mentions that he was concerned with the rightward trajectory of the country. But then he goes on to say that as he was imagining like a future, uh, a future London, a future United Kingdom, that uh, the things that he was taking away from the moment were that capital punishment is horrendous and violent uh, and that incarceration is very expensive and takes resources mm. away from communities. And right. so what he said is, uh, you know, criminals by their nature of committing crime already show us that they don't want to be a part of our society, that they already reject our society. So he had this idea, why not just build a story in which in the future, uh, criminals have their own society on a little island. It, so it, it, his, his messaging seems a little odd, a little off just in general. Um, yeah. I, I couldn't gather more from what he was saying beyond that. Uh, but, but I did find that, that those remarks interesting. I got two things to, to say to that. So there's one bit... I'm not sure if you guys caught it. So in the Leviticus kind of scene at the beginning, um, the warden calls Robbins in after like looking at his record on the on the little screen there, and then kind of you know exposits for our benefit about Robbins' record. Um, and there's a line in there. I think I wrote it down where he's like, um, "A scan of your DNA has shown that you." Uh, have this predisposition to reject authority yep. mm -hmm. and that you are prone <laughs> to violent behavior. Yes. Now I'm not now I'm not sure if that's something that's been added in in the in the adaptation process, whether that's a thread from the novel that's been pulled through and slightly altered, but that does seem to track with uh Hurley's kind of, you know, criminals are inherently bad. Uh, there is some kind of innate criminal quality that you have, and therefore they yep. must be removed from society. Um, it's a little bit of a little bit of congruence there that that I'm not sure is entirely intentional or not. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also Owen like perfectly reflects the kind of overarching narrative, definitely in the states, and and I would argue also in the UK at the same time about criminality you know in 94 joe biden famously helped push uh the massive uh piece of legislation uh known uh casually as the crime bill and fundamentally changed the prison system mm -hmm. and the state of police in america henceforth like yeah. in in ways that um we are still calculating and seeing the damage of and uh, you know, hand in hand with that is Clinton's emphasis and just sort of by and large, the the modern liberal party's emphasis on merit and on, you know, this idea that um, the worthy people in society are the ones that succeed. If you work hard and you are 
uh, of sound moral character, you won't have anything standing in your way. And even when you have something standing in your way, you will still persevere and and succeed. And anyone who doesn't, that is evidence in and of itself of your, not only your failings, but also of, uh, of moral judgment upon you, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, and the other thing that this movie gets into and doesn't really know sort of like, how to net out from it is this idea of rehabilitation, which is a complicated one for any liberal, right? Because they are for incarceration, ostensibly. They are for this sort of punitive uh, uh, stance of the state. And also, you know, wrapping it in this care and concern rhetoric, right? It's like, well, but you know, killing them is too far, right? Like capital punishment, that's, that's garish. That's, that's not, that's not uh, right and good. So, so there's already a place of conflict in this, in this liberal posture around incarceration and the idea of, or the concept of rehabilitation perfectly sums up this conflict because on the one hand you're saying, well, People who are criminals have already told us that they are not fit for society and never will be and are actively choosing to not be a part of society. There are no yeah. circumstances that would cause someone to commit a crime, of course, right? That's that's that. <laughs> but then on the other hand, you also have this care and concern rhetoric around rehabilitation, which is that, well, we also want to help people right we want we want to believe that people can potentially be reformed and and that's an idea that sort of fits in with this modern liberal worldview of uh you know morality right well if we just sort of like spruce them up and like teach them the right way like then they might be a, a productive part of society and yet where this film nets out is often where the modern liberal nets out which is that like it still fundamentally believes that these people should uh, take their punishment on the chin. And often in this movie, you have people who are on the morally good side between the outsiders and the insiders in the insiders saying, I'm right where I need to be. So it's this like self-policing, self-moralizing thing that tells us they are good to a certain extent, but still criminal. So need to stay on the island. Yeah. Yeah. And the warden... The warden kind of explicitly states that and kind of, I guess, like, unobscures that element from, like, the whole carceral project. So, like you were saying, Carly, like, there's the punitive aspect of, like, you know, they've committed wrongs against, like, the laws that, that, you know, govern society and they must be punished. There must be a sense of justice and a sense of fairness. But at the same time, we have this moral and ethical veneer of rehabilitation and Mm -hmm. and reformation and then the warden is kind of just like you have been sent here because the world or the governments of the world have no use for you you have been condemned so it's just kind of like no that that rehabilitation project is not what we're doing here this is this is pure this is purely a punitive project and the warden himself is, you know, shown to be kind of masochistic in that endeavor and kind of just playing and toying with people for his own kind of benefit. 
I want a space on the next boat. We've already discussed that. Listen to me. You've got an engine, but it's worthless because it's missing something, right? But what if I told you I've seen what you're looking for that's here on this island in Marek's camp? You know and I know that you stand almost no chance of returning alive. It's my problem. I think that there's something you ought to be made aware of. We have an understanding here that anyone who escapes gets the word out. And risk getting sent back? You think we take all these risks just to save a few men? We have a responsibility to blow this place wide open. And the boat is the only way for getting the rest of us off. You've heard my deal. There's no conditions. Take it or leave it. The film tries to wrestle with this idea of like redemption and remorse. And these were the tensions that I was talking about with Robin's character. Like there's that scene in the insider's camp. It's a weird scene. It comes out of nowhere where they're all celebrating Christmas and there's yeah. Yeah. they've all got they've all got like party hats on and there's like music and you can't tell whether it's diegetic or like or extra diegetic like right. do they have a sound system <laughs> like what's going on and they all and, get gifted bubble gum yeah it's just it's very strange very odd but there's that moment where um father Lance Henriksen's character is trying to talk about like you know this sense of community that they all share. And that's why they have to protect the camp. And that's what they're all doing. They're trying to rehabilitate themselves. And then Robbins is just kind of like, yeah, let's think about our victims too, because we're all here because we did bad things. And he kind of has his buzzkill moment and then bails and kind of leaves. But then I just thought that was kind of funny that like he's wrestling with this thing of like, you know, I've obviously done something bad. And that's why I'm here. But then there's another scene with Casey where Casey's trying to follow him to the outsider camp. And and Casey's like, you know, I want to come with you. I want to help. And he like pins him up against a tree and he's like, are you ready to kill? Are you ready to kill Casey? Because that's what I'm going to do. He's like, you know, no hesitation, no remorse. Like I'm going to kill. And it's like, are you thinking about your future victims or just the past ones? Like, <laughs> wh- who are you as a character? Like, are you a killing machine? Like we've seen him kill. He kills rather yep. ruthlessly and efficiently and kinetically. So like he's very capable at doing that. But yeah, the his ethical character and his physical character are like at odds with each other. And I'm not sure if the film really wants to interrogate that too much. Like it just kind of wraps it up at the end of like, oh yeah, he gets away. Cool. The end. It's like, yeah. Ah, okay. That kind of perfectly encapsulates the perspective that we have on someone who executes some sort of enforcement mm-hmm. of states carceral power, right? Like we are against murder, but then when like, police do it or when it's like under certain circumstances or done at the advance of like the finger quotes good guys then it's okay right then it's like a thing that we know is necessary um and that's kind of the perspective the movie has it's like well he's killing the bad guys he's killing outsiders so like that's fine but the people before that he killed like that's the thing he has to have remorse about and that's that is the thing that distinguishes, um, you know, the two camps is one sort of like their organization. Uh, one is, uh, you know, sort of fraught with gangs and it's more sort of like a, a, a territorial mass of of infighting. Uh, the insiders are 
socialists like i yeah some sort of weird like agrarian <laughs> socialism like a ferrarian yeah. Fourierian kind well, of thing uh, but then they have their own they have their own punitive system within themselves like that was the other thing that i thought was strange like they had this internalized sense of law and order which yes yep. I, th- there wasn't much going on in this film so i was like how can i over philosophize yeah. <laughs> this film how can yeah, i let's let's, let's talk about this scene a little bit let's let's do some ground setting really quickly because there's a, a moment in in the film where uh much to re- ray Liotta's character's objections uh the insiders follow through with one of their sort of disciplinary acts which is they punish those who do not keep who fail in their duties to protect the insider camp that's right Um, so there's a a part where a man has fallen asleep for the second time during his watch in the evening and was already warned and so he is exiled and banished into the jungle which we know uh, means certain doom uh, because he will likely either die out there or be picked up by the the outsiders and eaten or or killed uh, in in whatever order you want to you want to go it, with. It, it's a death sentence by by any other name, essentially. Yes, just like, exactly. Yeah, um, and I just thought that was interesting to kind of jump off what we've been talking about. Like they, as victims of this carceral system, have still internalized their own sense of morality and ethics. Yep. and formulated another subset of of carceral kind of justice. Um, so, like, yep. in a film that's trying to say, like, look at this wacky, crazy future law and order. Isn't that so zany and weird? But still within it, they're like, no, we need law and order. We need justice. Yes. There must be, you know, punishment for for this breaking of the infraction. So... What I think might be going on there, and I certainly don't think the writers had any intention of operating at this level, but this is what I read into it. Like uh, in uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis, they talk about the name of the father, which is like Mm -hmm. this like paternalized symbolic representation that we all have of the father or the father figure as being related to, to law and to the right thing. Um, Mm. And if you go down that psychoanalytic rabbit hole, it leads into like the Oedipus complex and all sorts of like incest taboos and all that sort of stuff. But just at a very broad strokes level, like I do think in the film, like Lance Henriksen's father is the symbolic father. Like he's meant to be, you know, they talk about how he's the one who basically created their society. Like, and they also say that like, Maybe he's innocent, maybe he's not. And then he kind of, a sense, like, kind of confesses to what he was doing and kind of says, like, I deserve to be here anyway. So, like, it's very confused in terms of, like, who should be there and who shouldn't and who deserves to be there and who shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe we're overthinking it. We probably are overthinking it. But there's, there's <laughs> we some always other- do, but that's the nature of our show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's one more that I picked up, which again I think is probably accidental, but it was something I jumped on. So uh, when Robbins gets to the insider camp, they take him up to the, like the the top level, like the observation deck, and they're kind of expositing to him about all the ways that they're kept on the island. So the jungle is like one border, and that's controlled by the outsiders. 
then they've got the cliffs and the water on the other side, the helicopters, the drops, kind of laying it out for him of like, we know you're thinking of escaping, you can't escape. Like, this is kind of locked in. But uh, Hawkins' character, in, in almost the same breath, he's like, you're on an island. He's like, but then you're also on an archipelago. And I was like, okay, are they on like an island island, like completely surrounded by water? Are they linked to some kind of like mainland through that archipelago? Mm. I'm not entirely sure. But the name stuck with me and I was like, why is that sticking in my head? So then (laughs) I I typed in like prison island archipelago uh, and it turns out I was thinking of uh, Foucault and his uh, book Discipline and Punish. And he talks about this talks about this idea called the carceral archipelago um, yes. <laughs> and he's not talking he's not talking about a literal archipelago he's talking about no, a metaphorical no. one but he uses that term to describe all of the mechanisms and technologies and knowledge systems in our socio-political fabric to inscribe this idea of carceration and prison and the the long kind of historical context of it so again, I don't know if it's something intentional that these very obscure writers who have almost no other credits to mention deliberately put in this idea of like a carceral archipelago that is an island or isn't an island. But it was just a weird thread that I was like, for some reason that's sticking out to me. And then once I found it, I was like, oh, that's a that's a cool kind of idea that links into this idea of you know, incarceration and prisons and, and rehabilitation. So, again, overthinking this uh, very, very campy 90s film. I would say that with a lot of these kinds of movies that we end up investigating on the show, the problem is that their brains are relatively empty. And the thing <laughs> that I found frustrating about this is that the film uh, is is very much not that, that it actually has almost uh, too many abundant ideas that it doesn't follow through on any of them and it, it go doesn't in connect direction. them in any meaningful way like they're very yeah. right. they're, they're very scattered and you kind of have to connect the dots yourself to kind of be like well is that what they meant or is that what's going on i'm not sure uh you know there are a number of things that i would change with this film to kind of streamline that idea process and i think a lot of it is just about the the second act in the middle of the film it kind of like loses itself in kind of what it's trying to say or what it's doing it's mainly just the boat stuff everything to do with the boat (laughs) just seems like just seems like kind of misdirection like they have to introduce the dysart character then they go through like the whole like what are they doing at night and then he just goes there and then they're like oh hey you shouldn't be here and he's like well i am what are you doing and it's just like (laughs) it's very it's very lazy and you could cut all of that stuff out because ultimately the boat you know is kind of pointless um they get betrayed and they they indicate very early on that robbins is a helicopter pilot so right. as, soon, yeah. as soon as they show the helicopters i'm like oh he's gonna steal the helicopter to, right. to get it to, to get off the <laughs> island like it's very obvious <laughs> right. so yeah it's very even meandering it, and it's very obvious like where it's going to eventually absolutely go. yeah so i think you know there's a lot of stuff left on the table that could be kind of cleaned up and it would make for a more streamlined film. Cause it's, it's a two hour film and absolutely does not need to be a two hour film. Like no. <laughs> we, we need a tight 90 cut 
of it no could, escape. It could absolutely be a tight 90 on Absalom. You could cut yeah. out the introduction. You could do it all in exposition. You can get rid of the boat subplot, yeah. uh, which saves them the trip back to the outsider camp to steal the distributor and, and all that right. kind of yeah. stuff. Le- leave, leave the opening credits. Like Show us, you know, popping the guy in the head. Then smash cut to the helicopter to the island, fill it all in with the exposition and the backstory, and it works. It's perfect. Sorry to keep you waiting, gentlemen. I've been a little preoccupied. Now, I think it's about time we all patched up our little differences, don't you? Now, anyone who would like to disagree with me, would you please raise your right hand? If you've got one. No? Good. Very good. As you can see, I've eliminated all the heads of state. So from now on, we're all going to be very nice and civilized, okay? Going to be no more gangs, no more petty squabbles, no more fighting. I've been under a lot of stress lately. So the reason for this is very simple. I really want to be in charge. Okay. One of the interesting threads in this one that I I do want to interrogate a little bit further is what we've already kind of uh, touched upon in terms of Robin's history. That he is, in this 2022 future, uh, a former uh, military man. um, And thinking about the reasons why he is so haunted um, and, and why he initially killed his commanding officer in the first place, which is that he was ordered to carry out uh, some sort of airstrike or, or bombing uh, that wound up killing several hundreds of, of civilians, women and children. And the film seems to have on its mind this kind of critique of American imperialism and like military occupations specifically i think as it pertains to like the previous generation and and vietnam maybe mm-hmm. even like a little bit of of uh uh desert storm and like the gulf war which we we talked about in terms of uh mm-hmm. in relation to star uh, stargate last time you were on owen yeah but one of the one of the fascinating things about it is you know and and i, I think this is the saying right that we we call fascism like imperialism turned inward right mm-hmm. yep. and that for all of this movie's merits and for all the ideas in its head, it can't seem to recognize and see the violence of the carceral system as a vestige and extension of that same imperial ethos that jaded and and haunts Robbins in the film, right? It, it wants to sort of level this criticism of, of the American military in, insofar as the movie has any interest in doing anything, you know, in terms of like sending a message. Like it definitely is relaying something that i think was very familiar to people at this point and you know recognizing that we carried out a lot of these massacres and a lot of this violence towards civilian populations in previous war efforts um but then as we already mentioned it it bears no consequence for violence from prisoner to prisoner and in fact kind of celebrates it right like it wants us to enjoy uh seeing robin's dispatch uh, Merrick's guys and and see the sort of like chaos and violence that erupts within this prison population without interrogating or critiquing it at all. Yeah, and there's there's almost kind of a reverence that they give to that military position. Like when mm-hmm. he first arrives in the insider camp 
and he like talks to father and then kind of leaves there's a bit of a dialogue exchange between hawkins and father and hawkins is kind of like you know he's a military guy right like you know that he's like capable that he can look after himself and you know father is very just like yeah yeah i know but there's other considerations but the the film wants you to acknowledge that you know because of his training he is this killing machine but then it also wants to posit the like well he killed but for the right reasons Mm -hmm. and then just kind of like dangles that up in the air but at no point does anyone else in the film try to interrogate you know you know, are they distrustful of authority and the warden who functions as part of the state? Mm-hmm. But do they draw any connection to Robbins as being a state actor as well? Like, obviously not anymore because he's been punitively exiled like them. So now he's one of them. But, like, right. there doesn't seem to be any mistrust based on his previous position as a military enforcer. Um, well, America, <laughs> mainstream, the mainstream sort of narrative and, and our government has always done a really good job of decoupling police and it's sort of like uh, native violence that we have on, on our, our own um, communities and our own populations, decoupling that from military violence that happens elsewhere to other people Mm -hmm. and there's this like otherizing of you know not only the the violence and the sort of military exploits um but also of the reasons uh that those things would be happening and it's always all for the same reasons right whether it's happening you know to our own communities here at the hands of police officers or to men, women, and children in Benghazi at the hands of, you know, American military officers. It's it's always for the same reasons, which is American primacy as like an economic power, mm-hmm. um, and and that requires you know uh, a subservient population, many subservient populations, and um, and so like it's it's only been in my leftward slide politically that I have come to understand how truly linked those things are. But, you know, for your average person and, and certainly in the nineties, when all of this kind of like background, you know, despite this, this piece, uh, dividend that they call it, we were still (laughs) actively outwardly in the middle East you know, in the Soviet Union, uh, former Soviet Union, we were we were um, had active military on the ground uh, in so many of these places abroad, and that's like not ever something that you know your average your average citizen in this country links to the things that are happening here at home, but they are necessarily and intimately linked. Yeah, and I think, you know, on rewatch, I kind of came to this realization, but like, I think that's what makes the ending of the film so kind of underwhelming is that there's no, you know, if we put our little socialist hats on, there's no like materialist critique 
of the system or the apparatus that's going on. But the end of the film is literally just Robbins getting his escape. He takes four or five of the insiders with him. He leaves Hawkins in the insider camp. And as they fly away, Hawkins has this like jubilant kind of expression on his face. But then he's still there. Yes. Like he's he, he's, yeah. he's still in prison. Like mm-hmm. that's not really a happy ending for anyone. Um, and just in terms of like pure kind of narrative gratification, like, you know, the warden doesn't really get any comeuppance. And if he does, it's only hinted at and it's off screen. I just felt it was a very simple, naive ending um, that definitely closes in at the level of the individual while leaving all of the systemic critique completely absent. Like the film Mm -hmm. is not concerned with disrupting those structures at all. Like even with Marek's death, they're still outsiders. So they'll still be, you know, holders of that status quo. Hawkins has the insider camp. The warden might die, but someone will just take his place. The system will keep on rolling on unless presumably Robbins can somehow upend it off screen that we never see. So, right. Yeah. Herein lies like an interesting observation just about the, the political and, and cultural climate in which this movie was released in 1994, that there's still such a, a trust, a trust in these institutions and systems, specifically in the carceral system that we, f- we feel it to be sound in principle, right? If, if sometimes brutal in execution and that if this information got out to the real world that uh, a populace would be so so repelled by this idea that they would demand justice for these these characters which do these people just go to like nicer prison after this because they're still like <laughs> they're still serving sentences you know <laughs> like and and even that structure itself like didn't really make much sense and the more i thought about it it just got even more muddled like they say that robbins has been has already escaped like four or five other prisons presumably of like increasing kind of uh maximalist kind of you know varieties like a harder and harder prisons he's leveling up to get to leviticus right (laughs) yeah and then and then like he immediately goes to absalom and then all of the people that he meets there are there for like presumably very minor kind of things. Like Casey was like part of like a robbery job that went bad and like some kids got indirectly killed. So he's there. And then father like is suspected of killing his wife. And I don't think it was in a very like violent kind of way either. Like he didn't like strangle her or anything. So like, it's just wild that, for whatever reason, like, as the warden says, like, society has no use for you. You are condemned. That's why you are at Absalom. It's like, really? Some of, some of the guys building, like, windmills and shit? Like, they're not, <laughs> right. they're, they're, they're not, they're not redeemable at all? Like, I guess, well, like, the, yeah. Ab- and, yeah. Herein lies the confused politics right. of a, a liberal in, in the late stages of capitalism, in, in neoliberal capitalism, which is that you are constantly at odds with these two uh, distinct positions, one of which is that uh, state carceral power is necessary for order, right? And for the society to thrive. Uh, And this is, you know, 
um, painted with the moral veneer that we were talking about. The other is this idea of rehabilitation, which we're talking about, and and a sort of spectrum of criminality, yeah. which is completely at odds with the former. Like it is, it is perfectly exemplified in in what you're describing, right? Which is that all of the insiders are like kind of okay guys, right? Like <laughs> like they're they're right. they're like maybe they're innocent or they like have remorse or it's like I was there but like I was one of five and I was the getaway guy, right? right? Like I, was, I was the gopher. I was just the guy who got food for the kidnapped victims. But this <laughs> is like the liberal brain, right? Yeah. It's like it's like this is this is the only type of so- sort of redeemable criminal they can imagine, but they're still ultimately like at the behest of an incredibly violent and like overly punishing system, right? Like there's never the question of yes, how did the getaway car driver end up at fucking Absalom, right? Like, <laughs> how did he get there? That's not a question that has to be answered in the liberal mind. Like, you just have to know that he is one of the good bad guys. And the reason we know that is because, like, he only did, like, a kind of bad thing. And look, he feels really bad about it. Yeah. This is one of the foibles constantly of these sorts of, like, dystopian prison movies is that they never quite get the general demographic makeup of a prison correct. It's mm-hmm. overwhelmingly white people in the yep. movies. Yeah. Yep. And I, I found it funny that, you know, we we learn a lot about what certain people did to to get there. Like we know why Robbins is there. We know why Casey's there. We know why Father's there. We know that Dysart like built a bomb, um, presumably for like the IRA or something, we have to imagine. Um, we never find out what Hawkins did. And I think that that's yeah. probably because he's there for possessing a ounce of weed during a traffic stop or something as the only black man on the island it was his third strike and they're like sorry dude it was absalom (laughs) Absalom for you right Um, you cannot be rehabilitated one one other aspect i wanted to dig into with you guys did you clock any women in the film at all No. no none I, I think, and I'd have to rewatch it again, which I'm kind of loath to do, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> I think there might be some women just as like extras running around the insider camp, maybe. Huh. Um, but they've kind of downplayed. They're, they're not really like held on for any particular amount of time with shots. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And I don't think in the outsider camp there's any women at all, at least not that I could see. So... I thought that was another kind of weird splicing of the demographic of the prism. Like, is there a is there an Absalom for ladies? Is it like a pink <laughs> island? Like, is that is that what's going on here? And then the film kind of has a lot of a uh, latent homoerotic energy going yes. on. Yep. Did, did you guys pick up on that? It's very yes, absolutely. Uh, when when Merrick uh, takes Casey captive, yep, that he was calls the, that was him bring like. Up like a pretty young boy and asks he the men to my, not bruise him. Yeah. He says my sweet, tender, adorable little boy. And then he turns to some of his minions and he's like, I don't want him bruised. And yeah. I was like, okay, it's, it's a bit intense. And I mean, like it's already implied that they're cannibals. So like, you know, to suggest that they're, you know, engaging in homo, 
uh, homoerotic relationships is like completely fine, but it's just like it's very downplayed and it's not kind of in the text of the film. It was like in the subtext of the film. But I just thought it was a very strange and a very like conscious choice to just have like all men and like not even a single woman in the film whatsoever. It was just odd. Um, so yeah, I don't really know in the logic of the film, like what happens to, to women who do, you know, Leviticus level infractions? Do they go somewhere else? Like what's going on there? I don't know. Yeah. I imagine that the world of the film and the world that the film was born into probably doesn't believe that women are capable of Leviticus. Uh, of or course. Of course. Film, Liberal brain. Of course. Yeah. yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> totally. I, I think that's absolutely the case. Yeah. And if there are women at the insider camp, if there are in fact women at the insider camp, that would also kind of fit in with what we're talking about, which is that there's a lot of like ways that this movie is reminding us that these are the better bad guys, right? If there are women there, then that signals, you know, that they are, um, they are not as like destroyed and perverse as these other men that you know they can still maintain a certain level of like gentility and uh and is that a word yeah i think so yeah. i feel like it is uh yeah. gentility and um and and natural order right it's definitely a product of of like hollywood consciousness and, and very much an artifact of the 90s that like even suggesting any kind of um, you know, homosexual relationship is like either taboo or to be played as like inherently creepy and like yes. sadomasochistic. Like just at the level of like logic, you know, if you exile a bunch of men to an island, like they're going to form, you know, romantic relationships. Prison narratives all throughout time suggest that. So like it's not, and it's not an element that would be surprising to anyone in that scenario, but the film is you know, very much not interested in interrogating that. And the only hints that it makes are with Marek, who is the villain and a cannibal. So like, yes. it's automatically co codifying that type of suggestion as inherently perverse, which was, I think, why it jumped out at me so much. I was like, oh, okay, so only the cannibals are gay? Like, all right, okay, that's... That's a bit distasteful, but fair enough. Okay. Yeah. And also, you know, to your point is, is a thing that was punishable by law for a very uh, long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very strange. Um, one of the weirder elements of the film, I think that only really dawned on me on that second viewing. I was like, oh, that's, that's a bit strange. Um, but I'm sure not, not a stranger as far as late nineties action fair goes. Like often right. that, often that masculinity is played. Uh, very straight, you know, pardon the pun. Um, and, and anything that's against it is either played for laughs or played for the icky factor for the, yes. the casual viewer. So Yes. The other thing, and I think maybe we can start to kind of wrap up on this idea, like going back to that opening scroll, which is still like incredibly prescient in all the ways that we've outlined and was like the thing that immediately jumped out at me at the film, even though it was in German and I had to Google it to like figure out what it was saying. <laughs> um, it also, like it occurs to me, just isn't the film that we watched like in any real way, like reading mm -hmm. it again, it says like the international prison system is operated by private corporations 
Criminals all over the world are exploited out of profit. Prisons have become big business. How exactly? How is no, Absalom? We, <laughs> we don't how, know. Yeah. How is Absalom a business? Like, are the insiders growing stuff? Are they like an agrarian commune? Uh, and, and I tried to think through all these ways. It's like, okay, well, like, modern prisons have prisoners like make shit at a mm-hmm. very low you know, slave labor type, you know, cost to then sell and make money. Um, And that's why they have the justice system enforcing that to make sure that there's plenty of prisoners to fill that factory. Uh, But that's not really happening in the film. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe it's like some kind of most dangerous game surveillance state type thing where like, you know, people in the future tune in and watch the cannibals like murder the other inmates mm. or right. something yep. and it's ga- it's gamified in some kind of hunter games way but that's not what we see so it's like exactly how are they exploited apart from just being left there to die like i don't i, I don't know that scroll just seems like it like they started off with a cool premise that became immediately prescient but then forgot about it to do something else Completely. so yeah it it bears no relationship to the rest of the film. And you're so right, Owen. I, I had both thoughts. I was like, okay, does the warden have some sort of relationship with Merrick's men or with the insiders that they produce something that is then commodified and sold elsewhere? Uh, or this, the same presumption you had, which is maybe... Maybe, yeah, this is gamified. Maybe this is like a, a most dangerous game or like a squid game type thing, right? Where like desperate people are like, you know, put on this island to compete and fight one another. And and it's turned into like online, like sports betting or something yeah. like that. I mean, um, those those movies exist. Like we've seen countless versions of all of those movies. So it's not that it has mm-hmm. to be that, but it's just the premise they set up leads you to like one of those scenarios but just not the right. one that they show you. So, yeah. yeah. Or that there was potentially like a, an important resource being mined on the island, right? Like that they could have used them as a labor camp. Like otherwise, like why are you on an island, right? Just yeah. to exact more strange torture on these people. Like it's a, it's a very strange thing. Yeah. And we also like never see the presence of any sort of corporate entity. We don't see any businessmen, you know, like, no. like the, the primary villain is the warden and we never get the sense ever that it extends further beyond just like his own maliciousness. Yeah. You can imagine a scene, you know, there's that scene where they, they roll in at Leviticus and he's like that giant disembodied holographic head kind of like yeah. telling them and, I was watching that and I was like, holy shit, this reminds me of Power Rangers with like yes. the like, Zordon oh head Zordon. or something. <laughs> I was like, this is so weird. But like you could imagine a scene where it's like a bunch of like old stuffy white dudes in suits with their disembodied heads, you know, telling the warden that he has to increase his productivity quotas. And, you know, right. like, yes, you've, totally. you've seen that scene a thousand times in a bunch of different movies that expand on that premise. Yes, the, the 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 premise is here, but there's like just a completely different delivery to it. It's very bizarre. They don't want to do anything with it. Yeah. It no. makes me think that there was like, especially knowing what we know about Hurley, like uh, that was probably added in by like one of the American writer or like it's somewhere in the adaptation process. I think because like maybe like they felt like 
it somehow described a certain terrifying future, but like didn't have enough of a grasp on what like exploitation actually means and looks like and the ways in which like the current prison prison system of the 90s in America was already doing that um, to take it anywhere. So, I mean, just the materialist uh, through lines of this film, as we've already said, are non-existent. I think it's more like they felt like that was a cool aesthetic thing to say. (laughs) And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was definitely grafted onto... I guess like the core of the source material that they adapted and now like this will be a cool setup and a cool premise and then I suspect they got to Australia they started building all the cool jungle sets and they're like oh fuck right. it let's do let, let's do that let's run with that that's way <laughs> <Yeah>. more fun <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't I don't blame them like that definitely goes to the film's uh benefit but yeah there's definitely some lacking uh kind of I know payoff on that premise, I guess. Um, and yeah. you know, all you really, all you really have to do is just kind of like excise those sentences from that opening scroll, and you, you're fine. the The rest of the film stands on its own and it works. But which is a yeah. shame because I want to see that movie though. Yeah, I want to see both of those movies. There's there's two versions of this movie. There's the Morowitz cut that is like a tight <laughs> ninety and gets rid of the B plot. <laughs> Gets rid of the Rele- opening. Release the Morowitz cut. And then there's a there's another version of this, like the Campbell cut, that's like two and a half hours, two hours, 45 minutes, that actually sees through all of these different subplots. Yeah. yeah. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do one of those like uh, Lynch's Dune re-re-re-edits that's like only bootlegged <laughs> onto YouTube. But it'll, yes. be like, it'll be like four and a half hours long and it'll just be like all the stuff I cut and then all the stuff we add to it. And it'll just be a sen- <laughs> ostensibly a different film. And that would be more available than this film, which is oh, the yeah. last thing I want to talk about, uh, which is just sort of like the the ephemerality of of media and, and films within the digital streaming era. Um, this is now the second film in as many weeks uh, that is impossible to find uh, in any sort of digital format. Um, had to as we said, find it uh, on the back of a, a German truck. Mm. Uh, and we're going to ha- do another one of these next week as well. And so, you know, we like to believe that there's just like this abundance of availability of everything all the time. And it's only when you run up against something that you can't find anywhere that it really starts to like become burdensome and really sort of rear its head. Um, and we've been feeling that a lot lately here at, mm-hmm. at like the end of 2021, or early 2022. Um, this film is just like not available. The, the last North American release of it was like a, a 2006, I think 2007 DVD release, which we, we own a copy of. Um, but it, it's only Blu-ray releases happened in Australia, Owen, and then another one in Germany, which is why I think our versions that wind German up with version. that inner title in German. Right. Yeah. I think when you originally sent me this film to do, I hadn't heard of it before had to quickly look it up and be like, oh, that looks like trash. Yeah, I'm keen. Let's do that. <laughs> and then and then, kind of like the more I looked into it, I saw the cover and I was like, I don't know. I could be making this up. It could just be one of those like imagined kind of like memories. But I have this visceral kind of idea of like going through my local like video store at about maybe nine or ten years old 
and seeing this as like a VHS mm. in the store alongside other like 90s stuff. And I'm thinking like Dark City, mm. the Lawn Mower Man, mm-hmm. and just like <laughs> weird kind of 90s fare that like if I picked it off the shelf and tried to get, my mom would probably be like, mm, I don't know about that. Like maybe let's not do that. <laughs> But I, but I feel like this was one of those that I just saw like at a glance and then obviously completely forgot about until now. Um, but yeah, it is strange that there's entire libraries of material that don't exist in this online digital kind of realm. And you only really kind of notice them through their absence like you Mm -hmm. have to purposefully go looking for them to find that lacuna in the big like online repository of things right Mm -hmm. um and i think it's something that is probably only going to become more pervasive as every individual company that has rights to stuff like this is trying to have their own little slice of that environment so rather than something like a big conglomerate like netflix or amazon or whatever like gobbling up all of the all of the stuff you know you've got like paramount plus and you've got all these different ones like launching their own streaming service so there's like this balkanization of content and rather Mm -hmm. than paying for one streaming service you have to pay for six or seven because you want this little bit and you want this little bit and you want this little bit or you know you become very adept at finding stuff off the back of a truck so right it's yeah it's kind of crazy that i don't know for whatever reason this film in particular just seems to have completely faded from any kind of future monetary value like they don't even want to do a physical release they don't even want to chuck it on a streaming service like this could absolutely be like a netflix thumbnail that you find after scrolling Mm -hmm. for like you know 400 hours and you're like okay yeah maybe this (laughs) film uh it's bizarre and it's not a bad watch all things considered you know if it was just something kind of you know in passing but you know in the year 2022 the international streaming system is operated by private corporations (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and streamers from all over the world are exploited at a profit. Yeah. You know, movie Con- watching has become big business. Oh, I was about man. to say, con- content has become big business, <laughs> which it has. It um, has indeed. And I think that might be the most kind of like unintentional thing that this film has to say that like a movie set in the year 2022 is almost impossible to watch in the year mm. 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, th- and, I, and I don't think that is something that any of the people involved in this production intended. Like I can imagine Ray Liotta, like sitting at home wanting to watch his magnificent performance in his, one of his favorite films and not being able to find it. Mm-hmm. Like maybe, maybe he has like his own special copy that he's just yeah. like kept in a vault somewhere, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I hope Leota has a first edition print of the laser disc that this movie was released on in 1994. Yes. Yeah. Um, I hope yeah. he's got the Betamax copy, the one and only, like the, <laughs> the Holy Grail, just sitting yes. at home. It's enshrined. It's in its own special little case in its own special little closet in his media room. Yeah. I really, really hope for that. Yes. Um, and I think that that's a good place for us to wrap up this episode of Hit Factory. 
Owen Morowitz, thank you so very much for coming back to the show. It's always, always a pleasure to hang out and talk to you for a little bit. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a treat. Uh, I would definitely like to come back. So hit me with another film. Let's do it. Always. Standing invite. You are always welcome back here with us, Owen, on the factory floor. Uh, Owen, where can people find you and your work? Uh, So I'm most easily available on Twitter. Uh, It's at Pitch Discontent or just Owen Morowitz, and I'll pop up there. And you can find links to my writing and other bits and pieces. And hopefully I'll have some cool stuff in the pot. We'll make sure to link to uh, to all of that as well in the show description so people can uh, can read you and follow you and hang out on the internet with Owen Morowitz. <laughs> I was going to say, you could read my review of The Matrix Resurrections, which I think you shared from the Hit Factory uh, account. So <laughs> I, I posted it as uh, the counter... Uh, narrative to our own episode on the show because I think that you and I uh, could not disagree more on the film. However, you are one of the few reviews I found uh, that held the film uh, negatively or or viewed the film negatively that I felt actually like watched the movie and engaged with its ideas (laughs) rather than just didn't understand it. Um, It's a a great piece of writing. Thank you. I, uh, I listened to the entire bonus episode that you guys did uh, and I through gritted it. teeth. No, I, I was driving through most of it, but I, I listened and I was like entertaining the ideas and kind of like shaking my head and tutting along in like places that I disagree. <laughs> but I, I will say there were times where I was like, ah, oh, that is a really good, uh, that's a good take or that's a good argument. And I wish that I was like cool enough to like sincerely believe that. And I was like, but, <laughs> but, but I profoundly disagree. So um, no. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that around. I do appreciate it. Of course. Always read Owen's writing. Yes. Always, always. And uh, if you want to follow along with us, you can do so at Hit Factory Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe to the show for more bonus episodes uh, bi-weekly at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for just $5. Shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone.
baby.